Hey everyone, I'm Andrew Dobby. And I'm Lewis. And welcome to episode 13 of Just a Chat With, which officially makes this season number two. Um, if this is your first time listening to Just a Chat With, it's a podcast series where we talk about brand and creativity with the world's best in class. Up to now, this has usually been a video podcast where we travel to meet our guests in their studios or their homes, um, because we think that adds a sort of layer of interest that, that we, we, we tend to enjoy. However, um, due to the nature of the way the world is at the moment, and um, we're obviously doing this from our bedrooms um, so we can't get back we can't wait to get back to that again soon um, in our last episode we sat down with James Greenfield who is the creative director and co-founder of a branding agency in London called Koto um, they have offices in London LA and Berlin I actually noticed uh, that this week or last that Koto just redesigned uh, or designed the Joe Wicks new logo for his YouTube channel, which has been having millions of uh, views daily, as we all know. So uh, well done, James and team. Um, before that, we had design legend Michael Wolf on the show. Um, we also had James White, uh, also known as Signal Noise. Um, who came to the Made Brave studio, which we're missing greatly at this time, um, as well as brand legend Marty Newmeyer, Claudine O'Sullivan, and Noah Klokek from Pixar. Today, we are very, very excited as uh, we have none other than Debbie Millman, who has agreed to come on the show. Um, for those who don't know Debbie, um, I, I actually don't know how anyone can't know Debbie because she seems to be everywhere on the internet that I look. Um, Debbie is a writer, an educator, an artist, a curator and a designer, and is also very well known as the host of the podcast Design Matters. Debbie has over 20 years of experience in the industry working with 200 of the world's largest brands, including Procter & Gamble, Nestle, Kraft, Liberty Mutual, Starbucks, Pepsi Cola, Haagen-Dazs, Gillette, and Burger King, which she designed the logo for. Um, Debbie has contributed to several media outlets in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Print Magazine, Design Observer, and Fast Company. And she's also the author of six books, covering a wide range of subjects, including branding, design, art, and philosophy. Debbie is also the president Amoretis uh, AIGA, uh, the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and she is one of five women to hold the position in the organi organization's 100-year history. Uh, she's the chair and co-founder of the Masters in Programming, um, Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and she was previously the editorial and creative director of Print Magazine. Debbie's podcast, Design Matters, is one of the world's first and longest running podcasts and garners over 5 million downloads annually. Debbie has interviewed over 500 design luminaries and cultural commentators, including Milton Glaser, Malcolm Gladwell, Barbara Kruger, Seth Godin, Amanda Palmer, and many, many more. So it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't had a listen already. Debbie, thank you so much for being here. Um, so we, we've just introed you, and that is possibly the, the longest intro that I've had to do for, for anyone. Um, and, you know, I, I, every sentence I go through, it's like, well, and that, and that, and that. Um, you know, you, I also didn't mention in there that you've got an amazing tech talk, and, and there's, 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 you know, thousands of talks that you've done on, on YouTube. Um, you know, for anyone listening, go check out the TED Talk. It's, it's really inspirational. Um, I, I was wondering, could you maybe tell us how you intro yourself? There's, there's so many things there. You're a designer, a writer. A what are you? <laughs> tell, tell everyone. Oh, oh, I'm just a girl. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hi. Um, mostly, I just say that I'm a an educator and a host of the podcast, Design Matters. Keep it so, so just it simplifies down into that? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for years and years, um, despite all the the many many decades that I was in branding, and obviously I'm st I'm still, but when I was really yeah. practicing. Um, my dad never really understood what I did. He still thought I was somehow in advertising. And he'd look at a Pepsi commercial on TV and be like, did you do that? Did you do that? All excited. And I'd be like, no, I kind of can. <laughs> and you're like, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> As if that was just, you know. <laughs> just wasn't enough. That, uh, exactly. wasn't enough. Yeah. And, and so how, how, how do you spend your days at the moment? What, what do you fill your days with? Um, well, now that we are in a stay-at-home situation, I am in Los Angeles with my fiance. Um, she lives here, and I live in Manhattan. But I um, decided we both decided that it would be better for us to be in Los Angeles. So now we're going on, I think, seven weeks here, which uh, technically makes this the longest I've ever been away from New York in my entire life. Um, so that's a little bit daunting thinking about it. Um, I am a native New Yorker and I've lived in all the boroughs except the Bronx. And so to be in a position where I'm now at, at a record number of days away is, it's really something. It's really something. And how, how's the weather? No, over, in terms of my days, to answer your question, um, I tend to wake up a lot earlier than I used to because I'm still working on New York time. And so, um, you know, people are having meetings at 9 a.m. And I'm like, oh, please don't make me get up for a 6 a.m. meeting. Um, but I'm, I'm in a situation now where I'm teaching online. Everything moved really, really quickly, just teaching in classroom to teaching online within a week. And so I had to really move a graduate program that's all about in-person participatory learning to online learning in a matter of in a matter of a week. So that was really, really intense. I think we've done a pretty good job. Um, so much so that I'm actually thinking about maybe doing an exec ed program online because there are some aspects of online learning that are really interesting to me now. I was always really adamant against it. I tend to be adamantly against anything that I don't think I know. And I'm learning that about myself. Like that's just not a good quality to just assume that something's not good because you don't know how to do it. Um, and so I have been spending a lot of time doing that. I've been spending a lot more time uh, making art. And so I've been doing a series on Instagram called Ode to New York which is really a love letter to New York City since I haven't been there. And so I've finished, I think, five episodes. Um, I've only done one episode of Design Matters, mostly because I have been pretty adamant about doing Design Matters in person in my studio so that there's a real intimacy that can be built, which I don't know that I can do as easily through Zoom. Although I did one episode with Marilyn Minter and people seemed to like it. So she was a particularly great interviewee. She was super open and we had a wonderful chemistry. I just don't know if that 
will happen with every interview I do, and I'm a little bit reluctant to try and fail. So <laughs> I've been slow to move the show to um, a different format. So mostly I've been uh, teaching, writing, doing a lot of drawing and gardening. I'm in LA, so I have a garden for the first, I have a vegetable garden for the first time in my life. So that and watching reruns of Law and Order SVU, which never ever get old. That's what I've been doing. Brilliant. Have you, have you kind of noticed any unexpected pros and cons from the situation we're all facing? Well, cons obviously being away from my home, which is hard. I'm I'm homesick. I love I love where Roxanne lives, and I love her house, and I've definitely gotten used to it, and definitely kind of moved in. Um, but I do miss I miss my home. I miss my cats. I have a, a family member living in my house and and watching my cats, which is wonderful of her. Um, but I do miss it, and I miss I miss Manhattan. I miss being in school and in the studio environment, missing seeing my students. I love my students and it's been really hard. I'm teaching both graduate and undergraduate classes online. And so, you know, I feel like they deserve better. So I want them to have everything they could possibly have out of their educational experience. So, you know, I feel a little guilty, but there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just trying to make the best that I can for them online. But in terms of the pros, well, just being able to garden and, and, being able to pretty much walk barefoot every day, 24, you know, just, I, I don't remember the last time I put on bare shoes. I really, I'm, <laughs> I love being barefoot. Uh, I mean, my feet are, you know, touching the grass. I have that, that's pretty amazing. Um, and I'm finding it incredibly um, liberating not to be going out to restaurants and meetings and mm. just sort of having that more, sort of introspective time. But it's also really hard because I feel so much of the world's pain and I feel so helpless at so much. And, um, but I've been trying to do a little bit of research and trying to understand some of what we're experiencing. I wrote a piece for Fast Company on why we're hoarding toilet paper and guns of all things. You know, those are the two biggest things we're hoarding. Well, why those two specific things? That was really interesting to me. So I did a lot of research on that. And then now I've been thinking a lot about brand loyalty, which has gone out the door, you know, out the window. There's mm -hmm. no, you know, you go to the the um, supermarket aisle and whatever toilet paper is there, you buy. Whatever paper towels are there, you buy. Whatever water bottle, water brands are there, if you need water or want water, you buy. So what is that? What is that tipping point where scarcity gives us the sense that it's no longer, we don't no longer need to wait for something else or we'll, just take whatever we can. So I'm thinking a lot about that. Yeah, and I love your kind of, you know, watching a lot of your videos, you talk about the evolution of, I suppose, human beings and, and branding along along that journey. Um, I suppose I was I was talking to our creative director earlier on, and he's a huge fan of yours, um, Stephen. And so he was very, he's very excited about this, as are our whole team, to be I honest. Thank you. Um, and, you know, he, he was asking, you know, do, do you think that, you'll, that we'll see a, a new evolution of branding um, come out of what's happening at the moment? Obviously, you know, what we are seeing is in terms of people are really having to prove if, if they had a purpose of their brand and they had values, they're having to really show that they, these are real. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about a lot of the advertising that I'm seeing this all, you know, we're there for you, we need blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Amazon, if you're listening, 
you know, we don't need to see your ads. We know what you do and we know what you're capable of. Give the money back to your employees. Give you give the money to COVID relief funds. We do not need to see advertising telling us that you're with us through this. We know that. We're we're really dependent on you. We don't need you to pay us, pay pay people to tell us, pay the people that work for you. So that, those are, there's so many opportunistic ads, and it really is um, stuck in my craw watching TV and seeing so many companies that could be contributing to people in need rather than advertise and tell us how great they are in this moment please yeah it's, it's like show be show and be part of the solution isn't it i think is is what you know people need to do right now and not and not as you say sort of give out that same message um, yeah. um and then you know if we look back in time historically and and i do love to look at trends and and patterns um the Spanish pandemic in 1918 and 19 led us right into the Roaring Twenties. So that over-exuberance of, of spending. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where we go next as we, if we can return to some semblance of, of normal pre-COVID. What do you think about the, you know, the, the discipline of design? You know, it's kind of professional problem solving. How do you think that will maybe change um, you know, its role and, and how do you think that people will understand it differently, you know, going well, forward? Well, I'm challenged on that one because I actually am more in the Brian Collins camp of designers, rather than being problem solvers, we should be problem makers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think we need to be challenging the way things are um, communicated. Um, but, in, but right now, so what is the role of design right now? I don't think it's any different. Um, I do think that if designers are capable that they should be trying to um, do the best they can right now to help people feel better <laughs> through some type of communication to um, either create messaging that is um, honest and supportive of, of what they're seeing or um, things that might show gratitude. But I don't think that the designer's role in an emergency is any different than designer's role in non-emergency situations. We have to be able to communicate the messages of our time with authenticity and with a, a sense of urgency and responsibility. So we, we recently had Marty Neumeyer on the show um, and we asked him about his definition of brand. Uh, and, and Marty, you know, gives it as uh, a brand is a person's gut feeling, a product, mm. service or an organization. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested um, to, to, to know your definition of brand and, and how you explain it to people. Uh, because, you know, everyone, you know, quite rightly so, they've got a different idea in their head and um, we're keen to understand. You know, yeah, when, when I wrote Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits, I asked the 20 people that I interviewed in that book their definition, and I got like 20 different definitions. Everybody has a definition. Um, I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I define branding as uh, manufactured meaning. So brands don't grow on trees, and they're not um, birthed by people's DNA. <laughs> I mean, they could be metaphorically, but I'm talking like really science, real science here. Um, we make them, we create them. And so we, and when I say manufacture, I'm not using manufacture in a disparaging way. 
I'm using manufacture in a way to explain invention. And so we manufacture meaning around something that we then try to get consensus around that meaning. So if I say that, you know, this is a phone, then I communicate that with images and messages and symbols. And then I look to create consensus with the public around what that meaning is. The more consensus, the bigger the brand. And then we use design to very deliberately differentiate that difference through some way of communicating what that is. And so I define branding as meaning manufacture, and I define design as the communication of that meaning. Fantastic. Yeah. I also, you know, I, I was again watching some of your videos um, ahead of ahead of today, and I loved some other things you'd said. There was somewhere I read or or watched that you said we, you know, we also use brands to unite people um, in the shared communication of of shared ideals. Um, right. And I thought I thought that was great. Could you talk a little bit more about that as well? Well, that's something that we've seen in the last ten years or so. Um, you know, if we go all the way all the way back to the beginning of our communication our first communication was was on the walls of Lescaux. Um, and we created symbols, a series of symbols um, and marks to communicate our reality. We, we did that in an effort to communicate what we were doing, to preserve memory. And, you know, I don't think, and I, I say this in my TED Talk, I don't think it's um, a coincidence that we've gone from documenting our reality on the cave walls of Lascaux to documenting our reality on the walls of Facebook. I think that's also very deliberate. We are, um, it almost seems as if it's in our DNA to, to want to connect with others through shared experience. And I think it makes us feel safer and more secure and part of something bigger than just ourselves. Um, in, in that time, at, at that time, I, I call that kind of branding bottom-up branding when we're using communication tools and symbols and marks to communicate out and up to others. Um, and so that's pretty much the way we were using our own innate ability to brand or to mark um, for most of our time on this planet, it's only in the last couple of hundred years that we started to use branding more in a sort of disciplinary way where we were creating marks that allowed us to differentiate products that were then distributed to the public. Mm -hmm. And so branding became the purview of the corporation. And the corporation then appropriated this ability and pushed brands down into our culture, into our society. And so the corporation was owning the promotion and the design and the communication and the manufacturing and the shipping and the distribution and everything else, and also the profits that were then pushed down. So I call that very top-down branding. Um, and it's only in the last 10 years or so through our ability to use technology to reach people more widely, more quickly, that we've reappropriated that ability and have started to create marks and brands to communicate our values or our vision for the way the world should be. And so we see that with, um, 
Black Lives Matter, and we see that. I mean, we we saw that with the original red ribbon for um, to to talk about our beliefs about AIDS. Um, we saw that with the Livestrong bracelet. Um, we yeah. have created marks and symbols to communicate our beliefs. Me too. Times up. Black Lives Matter. Um, even the peace sign. And so we do this in a way to unite others in our beliefs about what is possible, either about the current moment or the future, what is most just. Now, it's not always used for good, but it, these types of brands are being made by people, for people, for the sole purpose of communicating a vision about how the world could or should be. And they're not for profit and they're not for um, financial gain. And I think that's really, really exciting and a very hopeful possible way of, of using brands in the future. Yeah, it's actually, um, I was thinking about that. I listened to you again, you talking a little bit about that, 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 that kind of stuff. And it's amazing the speed um, these days that, you know, that a brand or a, a movement can, can happen, obviously, with, oh, you know, yeah. with all the tools that we have. And I don't know if it's the same in the US, but over, over here in Scotland, pretty much every window, um, kids have drawn um, uh, rainbows in terms of, you know, giving hope. And obviously, you know, in the middle of a storm at the end of a, a rainbow, that's, the, you know, it's the, the good weather comes after, the, the rainbow comes at the end of a storm. And, you yeah. know, and I was I was thinking about that today, just from a, a branding perspective, in a sense that, you know, that, that whole tribe have created a symbol there um, that, that, that I suppose that, that's now going to be attached to this kind of time in history of COVID. Um, and, and it's funny, isn't it? It's funny how we always do that. We feel that every time something happens or we believe that's in something like, or we see something. And, and we, so we manufacture that meaning into that mark or that symbol. Yeah. The symbol doesn't mean anything without that meaning. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be really meta about that, but we imbue, we, Im, we, we put in to that symbol what that meaning is. And that meaning could be very different from culture to culture if there isn't that consensus. Mm -hmm. Even even certain colors mean different things in different cultures. We just all agree that it means something in our specific culture. Yeah. It feels like- It's um... really fascinating. It's so fascinating that this is what we do. We try to mark everything. Literally everything, isn't it? <laughs> It feels like um, community, as we've realized that community is a really important thing. Like I know I've heard lots and lots of stories about how people are potentially socializing more than they normally would and, and discovering neighbors they didn't know they had, um, you know, and it's quite interesting. Like I also hear a lot about localized supply chains and, you know, during this time about businesses leading with purpose and keeping people and planet in mind. Do you think, you know, do you think there'll be a, a big change in how we, we see things because you, you've spoken about how there's been lots of signs in the past few years that branding is kind of returning to being a bottom up thing and a more yeah. localized. Thing. I mean, I, I think that will continue regardless because I think that we're on that path and I don't, I don't think anybody's getting off of it because we see the power that we have in working and, and communicating in this way. And so that that's, I don't think that's ever going back. I think that there'll still be corporate brands and I still think there'll be cultural brands um, and when I say brand, you know, a lot of people, like, I don't think it's possible that that could be a brand. That's only if you're looking at brand as a capitalist tool. Branding is mm -hmm. not just a capitalist tool. Branding is a humanist tool as well. 
And, and that's really what I'm trying to communicate in, in my TED Talk, that there's no difference in the way we create and manufacture meaning around a crucifix or a, um, a, a six-pointed star than we do a can of Coke versus a can of Pepsi. It's, it's all the same type of meaning manufacture. It might have different, the meaning we put into it is very different, but the, but the discipline of doing that is exactly the same. Um, I do think that there'll be some difference. I mean, first of all, we were talking about for the last 10 years, the death of the supermarket. Well, clearly that's, it's, it's not dead yet. <laughs> and it's not even on its last legs. I mean, no. it's, there's a real resurgence of, of that as a community center. And it'll be interesting to see if that does change when we are able to sort of go back to normal, whatever that means. Um, and then again, as I mentioned, brand loyalty. I think the fact that people are being forced to accept things that they might not have if they want something at all mm -hmm. means that they might be more open to trial in the future. I, I'm really interested in that. I'm, I'm thinking a lot mm -hmm. about this right now. What does that mm -hmm. mean? What does brand loyalty mean in the future? Once you've been unfaithful, can you ever go back to being faithful? Yeah, I think there's something interesting. You, you know, you spoke about the supermarkets and obviously they're having a boom. They're having a second Christmas right now. But what, what I'm also seeing is um, around my neighborhood, um, lots of people are getting getting vegetables um, delivered from local farmers. And, and I remember as a child, that's how we consumed vegetables. Yeah. We, you know, we got a big bag of potatoes and, you know, carrots and everything. And that kind of disappeared. And I think there's something nice. And, you know, also in terms of what Lewis was saying, that we're, we're back to looking after our communities our, our people and, and I wonder if some of that brand loyalty will come back and sit with those local suppliers and we'll see a shift um, in the market in that sense that some of these bigger brands even though they're reaping you know the value right now that I think maybe in the future um, a lot of these little farm shops and things will become way back because you know obviously just now they're looking after us they're looking after the local communities and that's something um, as you say you know people won't forget they, they don't forget who looks after them in a, a time of crisis. I mean, in some ways, we've already begun to see that. I think it's really interesting that back at, in the late 1800s, when the Trademarks Registration Act went into effect and essentially were protecting the makers of brands um, and, and their copyright and intellectual property, what's really interesting is that people at that time were really willing to pay a premium for something that was in a box or a canister or a wrapper. You know, they felt that um, it was more premium, it was safer. Um, and so they were very willing to pay more for that. And now here it is 160, 170 years later, and we're very willing to pay a premium for things that aren't in a box that aren't in a wrapper and aren't yeah. in a um, because it's fresher. So I think that those are, really interesting swings in the way we perceive things that will continue. And I do think that um, we're, I don't envision that we're looking at any backtracking on wanting fresher, cleaner, slower food. Could you tell us a bit about your podcast and how, you know, it's a, it's a fairly substantial one. How did it all get started? Oh, it started in 2004. I was cold called by an internet radio uh, network called Voice America. And they were interested in talking to me about being a host for one of their slots on air. And I originally thought that they were offering me a job. <laughs> they were just offering me an opportunity to pay them for the airtime that they would produce. 
Um, but at the time I was, I had been really, the last previous 10 years I had spent really nose to the grindstone and just working, 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 working. And I had given up a lot of my creative outlets and sort of felt like I had been losing my creative spirit. And here was an opportunity to make something. And that felt really exciting to me. So I said, yes, and I paid the money and they produced 13 episodes for me and they were all brutally terrible. Uh, most of them are still on iTunes just so that people can <laughs> see that there is hope for us all in <laughs> becoming better at something. Um, and I did about a hundred episodes with Voice America and then Bill Drantel, the late great co-founder of Design Observer, asked me if I would bring the show to Design Observer. And, um, but he did it with the proviso that I improved the sound quality. <laughs> so I had to get a producer to help me. He helped me find a producer. So I've been working with the same producer since 2009, Curtis Fox. And um, I, I slowly over time um, just hopefully became better at doing it. And the show started as a show really about design and branding. And that's why I called it Design Matters. And so it's very inside baseball, very talking, very much talking about branding and design of, of the time, right, of the moment. And then it morphed and evolved into a show about how the world's most creative people design the arc of their lives. And so now the show is very long form, deep dive into a person's sort of life experience. Mm -hmm. Back in 2005, the show was live and it was aired live on Friday afternoons at three o'clock Eastern time and then rebroadcast at some ungodly hour during the week. And so Brian E. Gomez Palacio, one of the co-founders of the first design blog, Speak Up, recommended to me that I put them up on iTunes almost like I was an indie musician so that people could just listen whenever they wanted. And so that's how I brought the show into what's now Apple Podcasts, but it essentially made it one of the first podcasts ever. And so I'm still doing it. I hope to do it forever. <laughs> Fantastic. Have, have you got any favorite episodes, favorite guests uh, that, if, you know, people uh, listening right yes. now, if they've not heard in, where, where would you tell them to jump in? Uh, well, I have probably, I have over 400 episodes at this point, maybe close to 500. I would say start with Tommy Kale. He's the director of Hamilton. And um, that was a really fun interview. He is just a, an absolute delight as a human being and so um, open about how Hamilton was created with Lin-Manuel Miranda and how they work together. And it's just, he's just a complete and total um, joy. Um, I think my episode with Brene Brown was, was really interesting. Um, if somebody wants to hear somebody be a really difficult interview, me, um, they can listen to my episode with uh, Richard Saul Worman, the founder of TED. He was really hard, really, really hard. I've probably gotten more correspondence about that episode than why, every Why was that? Why, why was it difficult? Oh, because he was really dismissive and he told me I had bad questions and <laughs> really, really, really interesting. That's not what um, you want to hear, yeah. is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, some of my episodes with, I've done a few episodes with Malcolm Gladwell, who's been incredibly generous mm -hmm. with me over the years. Um, I think those are interesting episodes. Yeah. Tim Ferriss, those are really popular episodes. He's just yeah. brilliant and funny and also incredibly generous. Um, my interview with Chris Ware, I've done two interviews with Chris Ware, and I think both are really interesting. One, 
when he was on his own and the other with Chip Kidd. I've interviewed Chip a couple of times. He's one of my closest friends. So whenever he has some new project come out, I wrangle him into the studio. I do an annual episode with Steve Heller that is, I think, just an interesting oral history on design. Yeah. Uh, Lori Anderson, uh, Maria Abramovich, Marina Abramovich, my episode with her is really funny. And we start out with sort of a... Um, an unplanned um, performance art moment because <laughs> I got nervous and uh, she responded to my nervousness in a way that made it so juicy that I ended up keeping it in the episode. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert is an interesting episode. I think there's, there's a lot. There's, I mean, I, it's like asking me to pick a favorite child. It's really hard. I can tell you <laughs> what makes that one special yeah. and maybe that one sort of more sort of pointed or persnickety or generous but I, it's hard to say like that's my favorite yeah so I, I read an article that you know that the amount of research that you go in before you do um one of your podcasts i don't know what the article was again um, but you know I, you know even today for me coming on i felt a bit nervous you know and i'm just wondering there's obviously people listening to this that maybe have their own podcasts or starting their podcasts and you've got um you know probably the best um, experience from from most people um in terms of the amount of these things that you've done have you got any tips for, 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 for how to, you know, to how to get over those nerves or, um, or just like, just for success of how to run a podcast? Well, I, I still get nervous. So it's hard for me to give advice about, uh, getting over being nervous. It's really hard to get over being nervous because it's something that's controlled by the reptilian part of the brain, which is the part of the brain that controls all of our involuntary actions. So that would be like saying, you know, if I go across the street and then I nearly get hit by a bicyclist, I'm not going to be scared, you know, or I'm not going to flinch or I'm not going to have that adrenaline surge. That happens without our being able to command it to do so. So trying to command yourself out of being nervous is, is impossible, yeah. which is why I do all the research I do. I do that in an effort to feel ever slightly more capable or confident to, to go through the podcast because I'm as prepared as I know I could possibly, possibly be. Mm. Um, but in terms of starting a podcast, I, I think a lot of people start a podcast with a great surge of energy and then lose that energy somewhere and then stop. I think one of the keys to having a successful podcast is consistency. And so before you start a podcast or before you, before you post your podcast, I would say do 10 episodes because you'll see how it feels to do 10 episodes and how your voice might change over that 10 episodes. Um, and, and then you have like a body of work that you can put up one week at a time after that 10 weeks. Mm. Um, and then I would say, you know, listen to as many podcasts as you can to sort of see what other people are interested in talking about, but talk about what is interesting to you. I ask questions that I am really interested in knowing the answer to. So that's something that I would really recommend. Go with your instincts when it comes to asking questions, because if you're interested, chances are other people are as well. Um, and, and I like to do research because I think it shows a lot of respect to the guests that you're interested enough in their work to know about what they do. And so you're not asking them about what it is they do because you already know what it is they do, but you ask them why and how. And I think that's much more interesting to people than just an open-ended question like, so what made you decide to do that? Or tell me about this. And it doesn't really have as much I think rigor to it because they likely 
people that are listening likely could hear that on another podcast because that's how a lot of people ask questions. Um, another thing I would say is when you're asking questions, really listen to the answers. A lot of people talk, 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 and then they wait for somebody to stop talking so that they can start talking again. And so I think if you really, really listen to the answers, it could take you to more interesting places than you might if you're just waiting for them to finish so you can ask the next question. So something I would like to know is, you know, having interviewed literally hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people who are all successful and creative in very different ways. What patterns have you noticed? Um, well, I think that the, the one pattern that I have, I've talked about and I do think is somewhat comforting is that it seems like everybody's still insecure. It seems like everybody still wakes up with some sense of self-doubt or questioning whether they can be successful again if they've already been successful at something or if they could be successful at something else. And so that was somewhat comforting to know that um, everyone feels a certain sense of questioning about who they are. Um, the only two people that I've ever interviewed that really did seem like authentically cool with themselves as is uh, were Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli. Um, and I interviewed them both in their 80s. So I think like, okay, they earned it. That, that's cool. Um, I interviewed David Lee Roth and one of the most incredible things I've ever, and he said one of the most incredible things I've ever heard about success. I asked him what it was like to be the sort of one of the most successful people on the planet in the 80s as the lead singer of Van Halen. And what was that like? And he was extremely thoughtful with the answer. He said that, well, you have to be careful with, with moments like that, because when you reach the top of the mountain, when you reach the very top of the mountain, um, it's usually cold. You're almost always alone. And there's only one direction. And, and I thought that was so interesting mm. in thinking about how to reach your peak. You know, I, I, I think that certain people that are, are working today haven't reached their peak. And like somebody like Paula Cher, she's in her, she's, she's in, I think she's 70 and she hasn't reached her peak yet. She's still doing like the best work of her life. And she's been doing great work for now 50 years. So I would like to think that I haven't reached my peak yet, you know, that I, still have a couple of good decades ahead and I'm not in as much of a rush as I used to be to try to, to make something of myself. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with taking time, which is good because it's taken a long time. <laughs> it's good that I'm now comfortable with that as opposed to fighting it every day. I mean, I still fight it, just not every day. Yeah, I think it's amazing to hear that you you still feel you've got that peak to reach. You know, oh my god, when, yeah. When we read that intro, that bio, that very much looks like you're you've peaked many times. It's almost like you're you know one of those mountains that has a second peak and another peak and another peak. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that's the case. Yeah, and I think yeah, I, lo I love that a lot. Uh, I mean, looking back to to the, the the little girl of Debbie Billman, you know, when you were you know, what what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I mean, I've talked about this a bit. I've, I've, I grew up in a very challenging environment, very um, physically, emotionally abusive. And so I didn't really come out of my childhood with a lot of hope about what I was mm -hmm. going to be. I didn't, I had no idea. I mean, I just wanted to survive. 
Um, I, I didn't really have a sense for some time. I thought I would be a teacher. And I remember teaching my brother, I would force him to, he's my little brother and I'd force him to be like my student in my classroom. <laughs> and, and I would take the, you know, I'd make up names for all the students and I would ha- take attendance. And so I still take attendance in class just for that reason. Cause I remember being a kid and being like, okay, I'm going to have all these students and these are their names and this is where they're going to sit. My poor, my poor brother. I would just that's all your teddy bears and your brother (laughs) (laughs) my student but you know the one thing i can tell you is that i taught him so well that he skipped kindergarten (laughs) he didn't need to learn anything that i had been teaching him so yeah i mean that's i i loved i loved doing that and you know i loved making things i always made things i made perfume and i made a magazine and i was always making Mm. things and so you know i've i i recognize now and you know as a as a middle-aged person, um, that I'm just happiest when I'm making things. It could be a school plan. It could be a podcast. It could be an illustration. It could be an, a writing a piece, something, but that's, that's when I'm happiest when I'm making something. Yeah. Well, you've, you've definitely become that teacher that you wanted to be. You're teaching us all now and you know, you're, <laughs> you're definitely inspiring us. So that's the, that's the job of a good, a good teacher. Thank yeah. you. Um, I, I suppose um, in terms of inspiration, where, where, where do you look for inspiration when you need to come up with ideas now? Um, well, I kind of look for inspiration wherever I can. I'm always listening to music and watching movies and TV shows and reading magazines. And I get, fa- I get inspiration from beautiful fashion and um, I get inspiration from podcasts and from reading books and I get a lot of inspiration from poetry, which I absolutely love. Um, so I, I, I think I get inspiration from gardening, watching something grow from nothing, from a seed. Mm. I planted wild seeds around this tree that we have in the backyard and they're all growing and it's incredible. And this sounds so woo woo, but it is really true for me, you know, a city girl to actually watch something manifest from, from nothing. This is always the challenge. Lewis or I never know who's going next. This is, this is the problem with having two co-hosts. I suppose uh, it'd be interesting to know about you know the businesses you've been involved in and how you've all, how you've maintained a balance between commercial and creative. Well, when I was at Sterling, so I I ran Sterling Brands and I ran the the design and branding aspect of that that whole department for twenty over twenty years. Prior to that, I was working in branding at Interbrand. And prior to that, I was working in um, design at Frankfurt Gibbs Ballkind. I don't know that I really have a balance. I don't, at this point in my life, I'm not, I'm not interested in balance. Um, what I can tell you is that when I left Sterling after 20 plus years, I decided that I didn't want to work in corporate branding anymore. You know, I did corporate and consumer branding um, that I'd sort of done enough. I, you know, there's not another salty snack. I need to redesign. I don't need to need to redesign another carbonated beverage or over-the-counter pharmaceutical or fast food restaurant. And I love doing it. And I love doing it. I have to tell you every, almost every project, I can recount some positive thing that I learned or did. Um, some things that I wish I didn't do. Um, but I, I don't really feel like I need to contribute to that anymore. So all of my branding work now is either educational or pro bono. 
And so I do a lot of pro bono work. Um, and, and that's very important to me. So that, that is a bit of a balance in terms of what I used to do and what I do now. But I've, even, even now in a, in a time when we're, you know, sheltering in place, I still find myself just with so many different interesting things that I want to do. So I don't really feel like I have a work-life balance because I don't see a big delineation between the work that I do and the life that I'm living. It's sort of all one big experience. And that's just, you know, other people will have different answers obviously to that. And I, and I do get some people that are like, how can you not have a, that's terrible. You don't have a work-life balance. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't have children. So that makes a big difference Hmm. to not, um, needing to delineate time as, as much as people that do. Yeah. Okay. I've got, I've got a, a little boy friendly downstairs yeah. at the moment. When you have so. children, then you really have to have a balance because yeah. you are obligated to take care of them. And both my partner and I live very similar kinds of lives. Mm. So we can parallel work and it, it, it has a very different sensibility. I'm, I'm interested, Debbie, just to to ask. Obviously, you know, we, we talked about you know that 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 20 years at Sterling Brands, and you know, you you went into that company when there was 15 people, and um, you know, you exited that business when it was around 150 people, if I'm correct. Um, well, the biggest the biggest switch was growing it to a point where we could then sell it to Omnicom. So we went from being this small little sort of scrappy private company to being part of a big public uh, network, which was really, really cool. Mm. And, 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 you know, during, you know, to, to be able to do that, you know, it's, it's challenging, right? I, I've, we, we've grown an agency to just under 50 people and that's challenging to get to that size that's and scale. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, um, I think my hair is falling out day by day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously, you know, three times the size of that, 150 people, you know, you learn a lot of lessons and you learn a lot of lessons, I would imagine, about leading people. And, you know, you come across as a great leader, you know, all the attributes that I see as a, as a great leader, you, you, you have them, you know, um, but I'm interested to know, like, wh- what lessons did you learn um, in terms of leading and having to lead 150 people? And, and you know, they were your tribe. Um, you've obviously got a tribe of followers now online. Uh, it's, it's just in a different format and you're leading in a different way. Um, c- could you share some insight to leadership and, and, and what you think makes a great leader? Um. I I would point to two things that have influenced my leadership. One is um, David Foster Wallace's definition of leadership in an essay that he wrote in um, a book, uh, Consider the Lobster. And it's an essay that he wrote in Rolling Stone. It's a, it's a, it's a, a collection of his essays. Mm-hmm. And it is an essay about his experience on the campaign trail when he was following John McCain in 2000. And it's a remarkable, um, it's a remarkable definition about how being a leader means you are willing to follow someone to sort of get over or overcome the sort of laziest, weakest parts of yourself. 
and when you are working for a leader that you really respect how how willing you are to work harder how they inspire you to do more and and that's not coercion it's real inspiration it's not manipulation it's in inspiring somebody to to give as much as they could give because they believe in what they're doing so deeply and so i think that that's really important and then the other is uh, Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last, which is a really great book about what it means to be a leader and what it means to inspire trust. I think being a good leader means that the people that you're leading trust where you're going and want to go there with you and trust that you'll be able to take them there. And it means you know, people, I think a lot of people want to be leaders because they think it's powerful. But what I think being a, a strong leader means is empowering others to do their best work, to be their best selves. But leadership comes with great, great responsibility because you have to be accountable to the people you're leading. And so where we see so much leadership fail now is that there is no accountability. There's blame and there's finger pointing and so being a great leader means being able to be accountable to not only the people that you're leading, but the things that you're saying. You have to fulfill the obligations of being a leader. Fantastic. How's that? That's, that's fab. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're big Simon Sinek fans uh, here. So uh, you're, you're preaching to the converted with those ones. Have you have you interviewed Simon or? Yes, and I did interview him after Leaders Eat Last came out. So well, the, a lot of the conversation was about leadership. So those are the two things that I would point to. David Foster Wallace. I mean, I love his definition so much that I actually made a poster of it. Um, and, then, and then Simon's book. Those are the two things that I think really have inspired me to, to be a better leader. But it takes time. You know, management is really messy. People are put in positions to be leaders before they're taught how to be leaders. And they think that that's somehow something that you learn by osmosis, and it's not. You really need to be trained and taught how to be a good manager, which then also means that you're being a good leader. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely something that you know that, that you have to be polishing all the time and 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 perfecting and and learning from your yeah, mistakes. Yeah, different things. You become a manager and then you become a leader. Leaders then sometimes like to manage. That's not a good role for a leader. Managers like to lead, but they don't always know how. So you have to learn. It'd be really interesting to hear um, what advice you have for you know young young people trying to enter the industry at the moment, graduates, you know, there's a, almost a lot more uncertainty than there usually, there usually is right now. Um, do you have any advice for them? And yeah, to make them it's very ch ridiculously challenging. I would say self-generate your own work. I really believe what Stefan Sackmeister said. If you don't have the portfolio that you want, design the portfolio you want. And so now is a time to, to well, not now, specifically, a global pandemic isn't necessarily the time to be super productive. Um, but just generally, as a young graduate at any time, try to make the kind of work you want to be making. And the best way to do that is to self-generate your own work, come up with your own ideas and make them happen. And, and I think that that goes a long way in starting to build your own voice. And then also... Um, 
and this is really just for anybody, not just young people, but I think young people get away with it, could get away with it more, um, is that ask for opportunities. Ask mm. for opportunities. There's been so few times in my life where somebody was just like, hey, here, you want to do this? And both of those instances were from Stephen Heller when he asked if I, he, he referred me to a book, a book project and, and then he invited me to co-found the master's program in branding. So he's, he's the only one in my life that's ever been just like, here, would you like this? Um, so you have to ask for opportunities and you have to expect that you're going to be rejected. But most people stop trying after two or three rejections. And so 80% of people stop after two or three asks. So be in that 20% that's still around after the 80% give up. Yeah, I think I think they're both great pieces of advice. That's something that we hear over and over is, you know, create, do the self-initiated work and then that attracts the the clients or the or the people that that they see that you have that talent. Um I, and yeah, asking, you know, I just ask for things in life. It's amazing. You know, if if we hadn't reached out to you and asked, we wouldn't be sitting here right now with this conversation. So it's living proof, everyone that's listening, that if you, you know, if you've thought of of doing something and you're and you know and you're too scared, just reach out and ask people. Generally, I've always found if you ask people, you get your your amazed with how many yeses you actually get yeah, um, and likewise absolutely. when people yeah yeah so, so still, totally uh, I mean I still get tons of I don't get as many no's as I get crickets when I send out invitations to people because I do all my own booking um so I don't get a lot of no's I get occasional no's but mostly yeah. my no's come in the form of no answer <laughs> which is basically somebody saying you know no um but I just keep asking and I just keep sending the emails and hoping that people will say yes yeah, great. Well, so I'm, I'm conscious of um, your time. You've been uh, very kind with it. Um, and, you know, we can't thank you enough for coming on today. I suppose just as a, um, a, a sort of lasting question, um, I'm just interested, you know, where where you see the, what the future holds for Debbie Millman? What, what, what are we going to get next from you? What's, what's the next thing on that list that we've not written yet? I'm still working on that. Um, well, I'm working on a book about design matters, but it's coming very slowly. It's called Why Design Matters, which is a, like complete history, everything you never thought you wanted to know. Um, and I'm hoping that that'll come out next year. And I am going to get married at some point in the coming year. It was supposed to be October, but right now we kind of had to put... Um, our plans on hold just because you know we want a lot of people there and i don't know that we would get a lot of people there so um but those are those are two big things that i think are coming in the future i'm going to be cheeky and ask one last question because what you said there about writing a book i'm really interested to you know i've not met a huge amount of people that have books i've met a few and i'm interested to how do you write a book how, how do you how does that process start and look and how, how do you do that you have to put your ass in a chair and sit there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You have to just show up every day and do it. Um, all of my books have taken about a year or so mm-hmm. to do, and they just require a tremendous amount of work. And so that's why I've been procrastinating. And, you know, I'm the first person to say busy is a decision. So I can't say I'm too busy to write my book. That's not the truth at all. In fact, it's an absolute lie. Um, it's just a matter of being too lazy to to sit down every day and do it. So you just have to sit down every day and do it. Elizabeth Gilbert's t- uh, second, I think it was her second TED Talk about how do you follow up something like Eat, Pray, Love with another thing. Um, it's a great, great TED Talk about just having to show up every day and do it. 
Excellent. Well, Debbie, thank you so much. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening. Um, before we go, we just want to give a quick shout out to Ross1453, who rated us and said, great, relaxed insight into successful folk in the marketing and advertising industry. They're varied and interesting. So thanks for that, Ross. Uh, thanks for the review. If you love what you're hearing and you want to support the podcast, please rate and write a review and help us get the word out also remember to go and check out debbie's podcast as well design matters um, and we just want to say if you've got any questions for either myself or lewis make sure to ask them uh, on social you can find us on twitter on facebook on instagram and we may feature your questions on the show um, we'd normally be putting this out as a video on youtube um, but this is most likely just to be an audio version um, just in light of covid and everything that um, the challenges that's bringing for us all we publish a new episode on the last Monday of every month. And so please make sure you're subscribed and have your notifications turned on to get those. Debbie, thank you so much. That was a delight. Uh, I, would have, I could sit for the rest of the night, but we're, we're going to let you get on with the rest of your day. It's a, I'm, I'm really honored to have been here. And thanks for a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Interesting. That was really good. Great.